you know, sometimes the best fruit grows in the valleys. I thought, what a great perspective of facing challenges or facing difficult things. You know, we're, we're in this kind of dark valley right now, but it's often where God does his greatest work. From Dublin, Ireland, my guest today is Pastor Steve Gilmore. Steve reflects on some of the hardships that he's had to endure in his life with his health, with COVID-19, how he tries leading a church through the uncertainties of today's times. And we laugh a lot about how I try to get him to do things he doesn't want to do, including this podcast. This is a real gem, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve. Welcome to the Become a Provider podcast, a show about how people bless and protect others and how you can do the same. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. Let's begin. Steve, I wanted to have you on the Become a Provider podcast because as, a, as we were talking earlier before we uh, clicked the magic record button, that this project is just a farce and excuse and a head fake for me to reconnect with people that I love in life and that have blessed me. And so thank you for participating in this farce. Sure. Thanks for having me, Justin. <laughs> so when I think of you, Steve, I think of about a decade ago, my wife and I decided, here's an idea. Let's quit our jobs, sell our cars, put everything in storage, and move to Ireland. And so because we made that decision, I went back to school to go to grad school in Ireland. It thrust us into this new adventure. And we decided, oh, let's get involved in the community and go to church. And so we go to a church without knowing anyone there. And it was your church. And we got to step in there. And what I remember about you, to share with you, one of my first great memories of you is that, honestly, I don't remember the sermon that day or the topic. Uh, I remember the feel of the place being very warm and welcoming. And then I remember after church because you and your wife took us to lunch and it was such a great experience. And the thing that stands out to me is double stroller. So for those that don't know you, why do you have a double stroller? And that's my uh, story of our first lunch. (laughs) Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, we, we had a double stroller because we had twins. So yeah, so we have four girls. Currently now they're 14, 12, and our twins are nine. So when you came, those twins were still pretty small. Oh, and I remember going into this restaurant, and as Americans, we're used to wide roads, large spaces, and I honestly did not think that Double Stroll was going to get through those front doors of that restaurant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, 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 we took special measurements when we bought that stroller. <laughs> Oh, it's just incredible. And the hope that we would fit uh, into shops and restaurants and the like. And you did. And not only that, you took time out, as we kind of joked about, they were young. And as Amy and I would soon learn later in life, it's a big deal going to restaurants with kids. And you guys just did it with such grace. And, and it was so welcoming. So thank you for welcoming us to Ireland. Uh, pleasure, Justin. We enjoyed it. And it was a great adventure. And you know, the fun part too, is the fact that one adventure leads to another. So because Amy and I decided to move abroad, go back to school and have that adventure, it allowed us to connect and allowed us to get to know each other through through church and to see how you guys led your life as well. And so, so you have a pretty unique story. And that's what I wanted to go into today a little bit. Uh, for those that don't know you, what is your, your day-to-day look like before COVID and now during COVID? Yeah. Well, I'm a pastor. And so, as you mentioned, so I've been pastoring since 2010 in a church called Every Nation here in Dublin. So pre-COVID, my main occupation 
my, my, my main thing that I'm doing is pastoring the church. And my wife is a nurse. And so she, she works in a local hospital here. And uh, she works in a, a gynae clinic there. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that, you know, that's what we were doing coming up to COVID. And then COVID hit. And so Cheryl was brought back to the ward um, from her clinic. And so when COVID was at its worst here, um, she, she was on a, a COVID testing ward. And so anyone who had a suspected case of COVID was, uh, she was looking after them. Uh, so, yeah, so life pretty much got turned upside down uh, when COVID hit, as it did for, I think, almost everybody else on the planet. And uh, quite a few of her colleagues uh, were testing positive. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to maintain a sort of a social distancing at home. Uh, my mother lives in the house with us. She's 79 years old. So we're, we're trying to move carefully around the house trying to keep her safe and, you know, Cheryl isolating in a way when she comes home. So, yeah, so those first, uh, that first month or two uh, was was pretty challenging as it was for so many people uh, around the world. And your perspective was so unique because your, your wife is actually literally testing people and caring for people in the hospital with COVID. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it, it kind of, it seemed like it, it was in a way, I mean, in our experience, in my just short lifetime here, this was the closest, I think, to a, a, a sort of a, a war-like scenario um, where there was such dramatic measures put in place for the whole population, as it was in, I think, almost every other country. But such a new type of battlefield um, where many of our healthcare workers were really going to battle every day. And one, one way that I, I kind of thought about it was they're walking into harm's way every day to care for people and to, to look after people and risking, risking their own health. But not only that, but, you know, when they go home to their families, they're potentially bringing that danger back to their homes. And so, you know, I think there was a, an added uh, maybe stress that many of the, the healthcare workers faced um, with that component of it as well. And so I look at you as someone who provided for me personally during our time in Ireland, where my wife and I were there providing, extending your your hands of hospitality and taking us out to lunch, double stroller and all, and then inviting us to your home and getting to know your family through it. And what a crazy time to go from helping to just lead a church and lead your family, which is one version of providing, and then a totally different version where your wife is in harm's way, is in that warlike atmosphere. And how did you find your role during that time? And what was your role during that time of peak stress when uh, mm-hmm. Cheryl was on the floor doing what she was doing? Yeah. So again, for, for most kids around the world, they were uh, sent home and they weren't in school. So we have four kids in school. So I think it was it was trying to maintain a, a level of stability here in the home um, to help the kids work through what they needed to work through and providing a, a sense of stability and reassurance for them that, you know, things were OK and, you know, trying to keep things steady there. And then, you know, and trying to trying to have things managed as well as possible for Cheryl as well, that she didn't have as much to think about uh, when when she came home so that she could, you know, have, have opportunity to rest and 
be ready to ready to go again. And then, of course, in leading the church, it like every other sphere of society, our experience of worship and following God was not sideways too. And so trying to figure out what does church look like in in a world of COVID. So there was a lot of trying to figure things out with our leaders and praying with them, talking with them and trying to see how how do we do this and what does what does God want us to do in in this extraordinary season. Uh, so that those were the things that were kind of occupying me I think Ed, when when covid hit. Yeah, and what what I think is so fascinating is that you're being stretched in all directions. So now you've got to fully support Cheryl and she's in harm's way. And then you've got the kids at home and then you've got the hat of the, the husband, the support, and then also the now the teacher and overseer and to run everything from home while I was trying to figure out what does church look like in the process. And so how did you go about trying to figure life out when, when there's no game plan for this, right? There's, as you mentioned, this is, this is uncharted territories for everyone. And so let's start with, uh, you mentioned trying to figure out how to support Cheryl. How did you do that? What were some practical ways that, that you tried to bless and protect her given the unique circumstances of her profession in the nursing field? Yeah, I think just trying to remove as many things as possible from her plate at home so that when she came home, there wasn't many, hopefully many things for her to need to, you know, to, to apply mental space for. So I, I was just, whether it was just some of the, the very practical things, the administrative things, things with the kids uh, or with school, I was trying to, to manage those things in the best way that I could in order to just have them removed from her from things that would just be filling her with concern or uh, headspace, I guess. So, yeah, I think I think seeing that the kids were doing well, if the kids are in, in good shape, that definitely, I think, means something for Cheryl. Uh, you know, just trying to have things in, in a certain sense of order as best as possible. It was far from perfect, but, you know, just doing the best I could, I think, in those ways, just that when, when Cheryl came home, that uh, that she just didn't have to to stress or or worry too much, hopefully, about things at home. That she could kind of prepare herself for going in to work the next time. And then you guys did some self quarantine in the house, like you said, because your mom lives with you as well. I mean, so that I mean, it impacted you guys tremendously, right? Like, did, I'm kind of envisioning like did everyone have their like room in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, basically. I mean, our, our house isn't a, isn't a terribly huge house, but my mom would sort of position herself in the sitting room for most of the day or, you know, in the garden. Uh, like certainly at the time when we weren't even allowed to, they weren't allowing the older people to go out really at all. And so it was between the garden, the front room and her bedroom. And then we would sort of take turns in the kitchen. So she would prepare, She you know, she would get her stuff in the kitchen, bring it back to the sitting room. Then we would go into the kitchen, prepare our food, eat there, and just trying to sort of keep the house as clean as we could, wiping the door handles, you know, the bathrooms, and just avoiding physical contact. Then when Cheryl came in, she would, we, we had a playroom downstairs that became her bedroom for several weeks. So she would come in, shower, go in there, she'd eat in there 
there, there was a shower next door to that. So she basically sort of lived there and just keep a distance from the kids as well. So yeah, we it's it's again it's far from perfect in terms of real distancing, but it was just doing the best we could with what we had, I guess. Yeah. I think that's the rather cry. The world was trying to do the best exactly. they could with what they had. And you know the, the incredible part about this as well is that not only did Amy and I get a chance to meet you all about 10 years ago when we lived there, but just this year, in late February, early March, Amy and I flew out to Ireland with our two girls and stayed with you all before COVID-19 was a thing. And just a matter of days, maybe a week later, the world shut down. And so what a gift it was to visit you. Oh, absolutely. It, it was extraordinary because I think up until then, it felt like this was a problem in another part of the world. I mean, we were hearing about it, but like that, just very soon around that time, I had a few days the Ukraine and another short trip in London. And even up until it was like, this is, it was a problem somewhere else, but just very quickly then it all hit everywhere. And so, yeah, we were so thankful you guys got to come over and didn't get trapped here or (laughs) something like that as well. Yeah, we we might have had this interview in person. Hey, we we wouldn't have minded that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been intentional keeping up over the years for a variety of reasons. And one of the ways that we kept in touch was because a couple years ago, I said, hey, Steve, I'd like to have a call with you to just throw something out at you. you A project I'm working on, this fellowship idea. And it was so fun because it was the first time I was starting to dream big about the fellowship. What do you remember about that conversation when we had it? Yeah, I remember it clearly. I I was sitting in my car outside a hotel here. I'd been doing some work in the afternoon there. I got the call and I remember you explaining the C.L. Thomas Fellowship to me and and your heart behind it and how it, it could potentially look. And I remember as you were explaining it to me, I was thinking if I was living in North Carolina, I'd want to be part of that. It was, it just registered with me in so many ways. And when you were sharing it with the view of, is this something that we might run with or might might implement here in Dublin? Um, I think it didn't take too long for us to, to reach a, a definite decision on that, that absolutely this is something we want to do. But I remember the conversation very well. And that was how I was near the end of my first year leading and starting the fellowship. And at that point, I actually had a former coworker of mine say, hey, have you thought about launching this one of the local universities? Because my son is about to graduate and selfishly, I want my son to go through this. <laughs> and that's that little conversation with my colleague made me think, oh yeah, like where could this go beyond myself? And it's so funny how I didn't ever get into the university, but it sparked the thought of, let me just reach out to Steve and see what he thinks about this idea, because I think that is something that I'd love to see happen is people beyond myself taking a small group together and exploring this idea of what does it mean to be a provider. And I remember just having a really good hard talk conversation with you to share with you about the last year, yeah. inspiration behind the fellowship, some of the transitions in my life and the idea of giving this a shot. And to your credit, you said, yeah, let's try it. And I just love that about you because this wasn't a proven group. And <laughs> and here you are saying, yeah, let's do it. What about that so made you say yes? Yeah. Well, I think it registered with me. And I think when I heard your heart and I, I heard the concept of 
men learning, and not only men, but of course this was a men's group, but what connected with me was I think that a, a lot of men don't know or don't have a good picture of what it is to be a godly man. I don't know that there's always, you know, certainly, you know, in many of our lives, we may not have firsthand experience of what, what it is to be a godly man. And for me, this was painting a picture of what it is, the, the kind of, the, I think the way God has really created us to be. I think, you know, we're made in the image of God. And what, what I was hearing in the C.L. Thomas Fellowship to me was really a reflection of the nature of God. And then really it's a reflection of our God-given nature because we're made in his image as well. And so the concept of loving people and blessing people and providing for people, protecting people, it's the character of God. When people, when men see that and realize this is how he's made us to be and we get to learn that amongst other men and grow together with other men it just struck all of the right notes in my heart of gosh you know i want to be that man i want to be that husband i want to be that leader i want i want to be that person who's playing that out in my life. And if we can help other men in our community to do that as well, I think it's just a win on so many levels. I think when men in, in the company of other men, and I think there's a certain safety and camaraderie there as well, we can grow together, we can be real together, we can be honest together, we can challenge each other. But when men start growing in, in these things, everybody wins. They win, but their, their families win. Their friends win, their colleagues win, their church, if they're churchgoers, their, their church wins, their workplace wins. And I think society wins as a whole. And it, it really, I think on an even broader scale, I think it starts bringing a flavor of heaven, a taste of heaven, the character of God, the nature of God to the world. And yeah, so those were some of the things that just were striking a chord with me when I heard you sharing about it. And I can't tell you what a blessing it was to then, just a couple of months ago, you invited me to a Zoom call with the groups that you've been leading and that the other leaders in Dublin, uh, I think you had three different groups this year, small groups. Mm. And I got to sit in on that conversation and to see not only what the men took away from it, but I loved how you invited their spouses, those that were married, to mm. ask them what they saw in their husband and their growth. And it was such a beautiful moment for me to hear that. And just, I had a laugh to myself to say, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a blessing, uh, Justin, you know, from our first group, the camaraderie that we share until now, you know, the friendship that we share up until now is so strong. There's been plenty of opportunities to challenge those relationships. And, you know, as we went through the fellowship together and we, we got to know each other, we got to go through some of the material, all of the material together. We can share a certain language together as a result of just experiencing all of that together. And so, you know, even from, you know, extreme ownership, for example, and it's like, hey, guys, we just got to own it, right? 
just own it. You know, we're, we're not trying to dodge a, a bullet here. You know, let's just hands up. I messed up. And, you know, or taking the initiative to, to make amends when, when things have gone wrong and, you know, not, not being so proud to just not take a first move to repair a relationship when it's gone wrong. And we've seen that in action uh, throughout. And I think the, for those who we, we, we've had singles coming through as well, but I think, I, I think they're, if they, if they get married in the future, their future spouses will appreciate it. But for sure, those who were married, feedback from the wives was really good. They, <laughs> they got full support from their wives for attending. Well, and I'd love to learn more about your story too, of what makes you the type of person to hear an idea and to say, I want to be that man. And I want to experiment with this unproven process and program of becoming a better provider. And so uh, I'm really curious myself, when you think back to those people that have blessed and protected you in your life, mm. who stands out? I think one example, when I think of, of being physically protected, I think of my dad. My dad is with the Lord now. He passed away a few years ago. I remember just one, like many, many examples, but this one particular. And we were driving into school. My dad wasn't known to be the most patient man uh in in the world and this showed on on his in the way that he drove (laughs) he drove the car and so we were we were going into school he was going into work he was dropping me into school and he overtook a car and it wasn't the right place to overtake a car and as we were passing out this car there was a car ahead of us waiting to turn so heading the same direction we were but waiting to turn and we we didn't see it until it was too late and we hit the car and we bumped in, we hit the car beside us as well. So there was three cars involved in the accident. Now, thankfully, nobody was hurt. Uh, so there was no physical injuries. The cars were badly damaged, but everyone walked away. And it was only after, maybe weeks or a couple of months after that, I was chatting with dad about the accident and what had happened. And it turned out that as we were about to hit this car, he had, of course, a split second decision. What is he going to do? And so the way we were heading was we were going to hit this car straight from behind. But he turned the car in such a way that the passenger side, my side, would bump off the car beside us. But the point of greatest impact was going to be the driver's side. And so his side. So my side wasn't going to hit the car in front of us. I, we were just bumping into the car beside us. And his side was going to take the full impact on the car from the car in front. And he did it to protect me in, in that split second. He put himself in, in the greatest danger to try and put me uh, in, in the safest place. And the fact that he, he just thought of that in, in a split second um, I mean, there wasn't much, there, there wasn't really time to do anything. This was going to be a crash one way or the other. Uh, that had quite an impact uh, when, when I realized. Hmm. That feeling of knowing someone gave themselves up in a literal sense. What a gift. Yeah. It wasn't just putting me out of harm's way, but it was putting him, putting him in the greatest harm, you know, which was to me amazing. What a great story and a great mm-hmm. memory of your of your father as well. Yeah, he was a very feisty man. He, he was a very impatient man in a lot of ways, but he would 
yeah, I mean, he'd cry watching Little House in the Prairie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very soft man and he would do what he could for us. Well, and that's what makes it authentic. I remember talking to mom after Pop passed and she said, you know, one of the nice things is that as we tell stories about Pop, they're, they're real stories and authentic stories. No one's perfect, right? And so it's yeah. nice to be able to reflect on the man uh, our fathers actually were. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think another way that my parents, when I think of people who've blessed me and provided for me, you know, certainly the, the spiritual foundation that they they gave. So they're both believers in Christ. And so they provided me with a, a Christian foundation in my life. And, you know, my dad was, uh, he sang in a choir and he loved to sing. And so even just memories of being in, in church on a Sunday morning and just hearing my dad sing, he had a really nice voice and he'd sing with all his heart. And uh, just lovely to, to kind of hear that. I, I appreciate it much more as I'm older, I guess, and look back. Those are really nice memories, you know, that just to see my dad, I think, loving, loving the Lord and serving the Lord had a huge impact in my life. You know, I'd see him on a Saturday afternoon sweeping the stones in front of the church, just making the front of the church look nice or cleaning the door, the brass on the doors or preparing the baptismal on a Saturday for a Sunday or just things like that behind the scenes kind of stuff. Yeah, but had quite a significant impact on me and just really thankful for just for the foundation that that they gave to us and those are the gems i mean i just want to encourage everyone who's listening to think about these memories like your dad probably didn't intentionally say today's the day that steve's gonna watch me you know clean the brass and know that it's this is yeah. serving his heart but he just did it in his lifestyle and how much more do we have that opportunity of just living our life authentically and setting a good example without having to just specifically say this is the lesson i'm trying to teach you Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think it can be in the very ordinary, routine things of life that can just speak so profoundly to our kids or to, to anyone who's watching. And isn't it amazing the memories that come back to you mm. having, you know, lost your father? Those are the ones that, that come to the top of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think another another great way that he he showed love for, for the family. I think, I mean, he was there. He, he was present a lot. And so, you know, he worked. But, I mean, a lot of, again, just in the really ordinary things, like he'd work during the day, of course, and then in the evening time, inevitably, we'd go for a walk, you know, him, him and me and the dog, and just spend hours, you know, the whole area around our home. You know, we'd walked most paths and, you know, little hikes around. So very ordinary, but just some of the greatest memories. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've had the privilege of, you know, living in Ireland for a year and visiting a couple of times afterwards. And I'm just, you know, imagining the the green grass and the rolling hills and the parks that's there in <laughs> Ireland. Yeah, it's pretty. When the sun is shining, it <laughs> it can be quite nice. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd love to also kind of go into a different area of your life and a different moment of your life. You go from experiencing the healthy childhood that you had and positive examples that you had. And then I'm really curious to know myself and share as much or as little as you want to, but in your adult life, you have to overcome a huge health scare. And I just would love to hear, like I said, as much or as little as you want to share, 
what's it like to hear that news? And then what are the examples that you heard or that you saw around you of people blessing and protecting you through that? Yeah, so I had stepped into pastoring our, our local church, Every Nation, in 2010. And then in March 2011, I was feeling very tired. Uh, now, we had twins who were five months old at this stage, and we had two other uh, girls who were under four. So we had four kids. The only thing I was kind of feeling was I was I was tired. But I thought, well, we've got four kids under four, and we've got twins who don't sleep a lot. And so... <laughs> So tiredness is, uh, you know, it, that's part of the territory. But then I ended up, got a very sore throat, which wasn't going away. A doctor in our church saw me and said he wanted to admit me to hospital for some antibiotics. And he did a blood test just as part of admitting me to hospital. And then he came back and he said, I'm not quite happy with your blood. And he said, I'm going to ask the hematology doctor to come and have a look. That evening, the hematology consultant waited until Cheryl came in. and she told us that I had acute myeloid leukemia and uh, she wanted to start treatment the next day. And she said, basically, she said, the next six, seven, eight months of your life, I want you to see it as an investment for the rest of your life. She said, this is, it's potentially curable. I think that the type that I had was maybe a 50-50 chance of uh, recovery. So, yeah, so she she told us that uh, my mother-in-law and our girls are outside the door when Dr. Enright gave us the news and she left the room and Cheryl and I looked at each other and I said, I think there's a storm about to hit or it's hitting, <laughs> but Jesus is in our boat and we just said a prayer. And Cheryl went home and the next day, then everything kind of kicked off in terms of treatment. So they, they did their further investigations. And then by that evening, the next day, they had started the, the chemotherapy. That first little while, especially, I think it felt like we were hit with a, a train just in every way. I think physically and spiritually and emotionally, I was... Uh, around 32 uh, when when this happened. And so, you, you know, you're, you're young, you feel young, you feel strong, you feel pretty much invincible, uh, you know, before. And I've never, I think, felt, I've definitely never felt as weak and vulnerable as, as I did in those uh, early stages, especially. And I think one of the big things that, if I was to look over that whole season, I think one of the big things was, I think we experienced God in a way that we we wouldn't have if, if that hadn't happened. I think it caused us, or maybe it forced us to depend on God like we never had before. We really, I, I really realized, Lord, we are completely in your hands. You know, our lives are completely in your hands and I don't know what way this is going to go. And there's not really anything I can do about, it. <laughs> you know, even on a spiritual side of things. And you think, well, maybe if if I pray or, or maybe if I, you know, if I have these certain scriptures or if I do these certain things, you know, you might have thought maybe if I did those kind of things, I didn't have any energy to do anything. 
And so I've never ever experienced such a, a kind of a flattening where I just I just couldn't hardly move. Um, and so I'm just feeling so sick. Um, and so I think learning to depend on the Lord was one of the, the biggest things. And he was so faithful through everything. He was so, so good. And I, yeah, I think that was that was one of the very big things that we took away from. And, and even in Job, I mean, there's nothing like Job to put our, our problems in perspective. But, you know, he, he had it really bad. And but at the end, he said something like this. He said, you know, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And there was something of that experience for us, I think, going through this, that we knew God. Or we knew, at least it felt like maybe we knew about him. But there was something about going through this that I think we got to know him in a way that we really didn't before. And he, he was so faithful in, in so many ways. And Cheryl's mom was able to stay in the country for a little while longer. She was able to help with the kids when they were so young. And so many people in our in our spiritual family, our church, just uh, and our, our our natural family just rallied around and just the support we received uh, was just amazing um and there was actually one older man who wrote a letter to me when I was in hospital and a, a lovely man I, I hadn't met him many times but he had lost his wife to breast cancer and um he he wrote just just such a, a lovely letter to me of support and prayer. And he, he, he just referenced this little quote of saying, you know, sometimes the best fruit grows in the valleys. I thought what a great perspective of facing challenges or facing difficult things. You know, we're, we're in this kind of dark valley right now, but it's often where God does his greatest work and produces the greatest fruit in our lives. And that certainly was the case with us. There was, a, there was another key point in that, and especially thinking along the terms of just God's blessing and his provision. And one of the ways they measure uh, leukemia is with a bone marrow aspirate. So they, it's, it's basically kind of like a crude little hand drill that they, they screw into your hip to just pull out some bone marrow um, and just to see what's going on in your bone marrow. And so they do this at the very beginning before the treatment, and then they do it again after the after each round of chemotherapy to see what, what's happened. And so I'd had the first round of chemotherapy and we were waiting for my blood levels, my red cells and white cells and platelets and everything to come back to a normal level. And then they were going to do this bone marrow. And it's a very significant test because that first one, especially because it's it gives them an indication of how the disease responded to the chemotherapy, how the body responded, and it'll determine the course of action and have a very significant uh, indicator for prognosis and things like that. So we were in this stage of waiting for the blood levels to come up. And my now my ex-brother-in-law, Nigel, he was a very he's a very practical man. He's a very down to earth man. And he would he would message me most days and just checking, hey, how's the blood levels today? How's this? And he's not a doctor, but 
I think I think he, he's got a very good mind, and and so he likes to kind of be predicting. I think you know by such and such the the levels will be up, and you know this and that, and you know he he'd, he'd weigh in his opinion. And he sent a message one day. I was sitting just beside the bed, and he sent a message, and he said. He said, Steve, I'm sure everything is going to be fine. Uh, sorry, excuse me, um, with, with the bone marrow. But he said, he said, if not, he said, don't worry about Cheryl and the girls. He said, we'll make sure they're okay. You just focus on getting better. And there, there was two times I, I cried. Uh, during those seven months. The first one was that first bone marrow uh, test when they were drilling into my hip. And I, I think a few tears leaked out uh, at that point. And the second time I cried was when he sent that message. <sighs> to, to think that there, there was someone who cared and uh, not only cared, but was willing uh, to do something. And so, so that really meant the world uh, that he did that, um, or that, he, that he, he offered to do that. And I mean, thank God I'm, I'm healthy and I'm well. I had five rounds of chemotherapy and everything, everything went according to plan. It was, it was a tough journey, uh, the, the whole thing, but... Um, you know, today I'm I'm well and I'm strong. And Nigel never needed to uh, act on on what he what he had said uh, that he would do. But just the fact that he offered was to me amazing. Um, to know, you know, to know that they would be looked after um, and and taken care of really meant everything. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. What a powerful moment to, I mean, hear the unexpected diagnosis, right? You had no indication of that. Um, yeah. We talked about Cheryl's background in medicine and you have a background in medicine as well. And when you yeah. get that, new, that news, you're a well-informed patient. You know what's ahead of you. And, and the storm is, has come, as you mentioned, and during the physical treatment and pain, the hardship of that. And what beauty in the valley, as you mentioned, where a statement like you heard could go one of two ways, right? Like, don't even bring up the possible future that the 50-50 chance where I'm not here. And yeah. you saw you saw the blessing in that. You, you weren't put off by that. You actually saw the blessing that here's someone willing to speak up and to offer something to me. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the funny... I think the funny thing about Nigel's character is he's, he, he, as I said, he's a very blunt kind of a guy. And so he doesn't, uh, you know, he'll say things that maybe others just mightn't feel, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that, or maybe that's upsetting. But to be really honest, I was so glad that, because it was, I think, I don't know that I, I felt there was that many people I could be that honest with, you know, and I guess you're, you're trying to be strong and you're, you're trying to be, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to be positive, 
and you know go through it as strong as you can but for me to have him say that it it was a real statement it was it was honest it was it was heartfelt and it it just for me it really connected and i don't know that there was anyone else who actually was that direct in in talking about where this could possibly go for most of the time it was something you're trying to sort of process yourself you know and trying to be strong you know you're trying to be strong as well for for others but to be it it meant a lot that he i i think you know and i i it could go two ways i guess <laughs> depending on 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 people but for me it was just the right thing that that i needed to hear it reminds me of a statement I made to Amy at the beginning of this year that I wanted to work on having hard conversations because it does not come naturally to say the direct, yeah. blunt, hard truth. Yeah. And what a gift that is where you know what it feels like to receive that. And it just inspires me to say, that's why I want to work on it. That's why we all should work on being that beautiful combination of direct and honest with love and care and it's that beautiful balance of the the protect hardness and also the blessing softness and just to wrap that in one that's mm. the goal yeah exactly and yeah i think you you word that really well where it, in that particular example there there was in in just a few sentences this mix of blessing and protecting and it, it was just such such an amazing combination to receive at that at that exact moment. Well, I'm so thankful that you're here. And I'm so thankful that you've got this wonderful testimony to share through the process. Mm. Thanks, Justin. It's uh God God has just been so good and 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 so faithful. And like I said, you know, I think it's often in the in the tougher times or the harder times when maybe, I mean, in that case, I felt like we were backed into a corner and we really didn't have any choice. <laughs> it wasn't us being spiritual or something like that. It was really, <laughs> there's, there's nowhere else to go. There's, there's no, nothing else we can do here. And he really just showed himself so strong. Uh, you know, and I think if we can see God or experience God like that in the tougher times, like that, I think we, we start to see just some of the greatest fruit that comes out of it. Well, I'm so thankful to see some of that fruit firsthand of how you've led your church through that. Because as I mentioned, when Amy and I were just getting into Ireland and attending church, you're going through your treatments. And you're, you know, yeah. and for us, we're in our own little world. We have no idea what's going on in your world. And for <laughs> you to, you know, even going back to that first lunch, you know, you had a million things to do in your recovery and here you are taking time when you're not feeling your hundred percent best. Well, th thanks, Justin. I mean, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm realizing more and more uh, just really how much it is the grace of God and it's anything good in my life. Uh, you know, I really want to give him the credit for it. It's been such a, a pleasure knowing you guys are like i'm i'm so glad you guys arrived in dublin and that we got to know you and you know then you you made that phone call and told us about the fellowship and just i mean the impact that that has had on my life personally 
the impact it's had on the men in our church, on their families, in, in our local church. I, I think, like I said at the beginning, I think this kind of thing impacts every area of society, like every part of our lives, whether it's our work life or our spiritual life or our family life, you know, wherever it is, I think going through the fellowship together, it's it's had a spillover into all of these areas in such a good way. And I'm so thankful you made the call. I'm so so thankful you shared the idea and that we got to be a part of it. And you know, I think I speak for all of the men who've been part of it here, that they feel just the same way. I'm so glad that your dad gets to be honored through many, many other men's lives. Uh, you know, his, his memory and the words that he said that have impacted so many of our lives and the spillover from that, I think it, it is is hard to measure. Mm. Yeah, what a great privilege it is to do this journey with you from the start, mm. to see the genesis of the idea and the formation. And I think there's a part of me that wants to get to that mountaintop and to see, like, and to feel the achievement. And yet that's missing the boat of the, the fruit in the valley and doing it with you to come up with the ideas that we've had and experiment with the ways that we've done from whether it's selecting books or choosing leaders and doing retreats and just trying to like craft, like, what is the great environment that will foster this learning development, whether it's in the U.S. and North Carolina, or it's in Europe in the Dublin, Ireland area. Yeah, no, it's been fun to to figure it out and and just to see the the different versions that it can be, and like you said, just to make it the best experience it can be for for the men. I love this excuse. Like I said in the beginning, this is just a ploy to connect with you and have an excuse to have an intentional conversation. And I know you're busy. I know you're trying to relaunch a church uh, as you guys get back from this uh, quarantine period to more in person. And there's a there's a ton of things you could do. So thank you so much for spending some time with me in the conversation today. Before I let you go, was there anything that you wanted to share that I didn't give you an opportunity to as we uh, close out our conversation? I think maybe in in summary, like I touched on it earlier, how when we think of those words and we think of what it is to provide and we think of what it is to bless and protect the people in our world, uh, whether it's our family or whether it's just anybody that we're meeting, I, I really just see it as a reflection of the nature of God. And in the way that he's loved us, we love because he's first loved us. And one of the books that we read in, which had just a huge impact on all of our lives. And the first year, I think it was the highlight of the year was Love Does with Bob Goff. And, you know, just seeing that love, it's so much more than a word. And it's, it's, it's an action word. It's a verb. It's something that we do. And in the scripture, we see that there's no greater love than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friend. When we start to realize just how much God has loved us, and just how much he's done for us and what he was willing to give up for us. And, you know, regardless of how man would re respond to him, he loved us and ultimately he gave his life for us. And so whether we spit at him or curse him or embrace him and, and respond to him, 
he was going to love us regardless and he was going to do what he he wanted to do for us and there was a verse that i just read this morning in luke 6 verse 35 and it says but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful and the passage is talking about loving enemies and doing good to those who who hate you praying for those who abuse you lending to those who don't give give back because really if if we're if we're kind just to people who are kind to us well the, he was basically saying well everybody does that and there's no credit to our account if we if we love like that um, and of course, it's easier, much easier to love people who are nice and, you know, people who are kind and nice to us. It's easy to love them. But, you know, when we bless and protect other people and expect nothing in return, it's like it's working on a different, if you like, heavenly account where, you know, several times it says if you do these things, if you're good and you lend and you love people who are all good to you, it says there's no credit to your account. But when we do when we love and, and, and we treat people well who maybe don't deserve it or, or who, who aren't, you know, giving those things back. Um, it, it's like we're working on a heavenly account. And, you know, here it's like we're trying to keep the books balanced. It's kind of, well, this person was nice to me, so I'll be nice to them and, and vice versa. And we try and keep it all on a subconsciously maybe an even keel. Whereas I think God's way, it's, it's, it's a different account completely. It's a different way of operating and it's saying i'm i'm not expecting something back from from you i'm going to love you regardless i'm i'm going to bless you regardless i'm going to you know do these things because you know i think it's it's a reflection of the nature of god and i think it's really a reflection like i said earlier of our nature because our our real god-given nature not not our tainted sinful nature, but our real under the like right to the core, our God given nature. It's how He's made us to be, and I think when we get to love people, bless people, protect people, and especially when there's nothing in return, it may not come back. But I think people get a little taste of heaven here on earth, and I think that's where God can really win hearts. Because what I've what's touched me the most. In, in the gospel and understanding the gospel is, God, why would you do that for me? I don't deserve it. I, I haven't done great things to deserve what you've done for me, but still you chose to do that for me. That unravels my heart. And it's like, God, why are you, why are you so good? Why, why do you love us like that? You know, as we learn what it is to, to bless and protect other people, and then especially when there's nothing you know, there's nothing in return. It's just doing it because this is the nature of God and this is who God has made us to be. You know, I really think it brings a, a, a taste of heaven on earth and, you know, hopefully I think also can win hearts for the Lord just to experience that kind of love. Yeah, thank you for putting in that way, a little taste of heaven as we go about trying to become more like our maker. And I also wanted to ask you as well in this season, you're providing a lot for people and direction and leadership. And what are some areas or ways that you're hoping to be provided for in this season of life? Hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, certainly one, one area where we are, as a church, we and a church leadership team, like I, I mentioned, I think COVID has turned almost every sphere of society on its head, not only the church, uh, but ev- everything. And uh, But as a church and as the people of God, we're, we're really endeavoring to, to find, like we know this hasn't shocked God. It, it hasn't, um, you know, he, he didn't get a fright when this happened. We know that God is still building his church and we know that God is still moving wonderfully all over the world. But I guess our, at the moment, our concept of what the gathering is and what, what a, a fellowship or a church is, our, our whole concept of that has been knocked sideways. And so I think trying to figure out what does God want to do in this time? That's one of the biggest kind of pressing questions that, that we have as a, as a church leadership team. And how do we lead the church well? Um, how do we be the church well in this time? And, you know, what would, what would God want us to be doing? And so, like, the whole concept, idea of church, you know, it's like nearly we've been given a clean slate. And it's like, okay, start again to a degree. And so it's, it's trying to see, God, what, what do you want us to do in this time? And is there part of church that you... you you, you want to totally re- reform and remodel and, and rework. And we just want to be in step with him. So I think one of the big things in terms of provision for us at the moment, I think, is wisdom. And we're really just trusting for wisdom and, and grace to lead the church well and to be in step with what he wants for, for his church and the kingdom, his kingdom uh, in, in the coming months and years or you know, as long as COVID lasts. Wisdom is always a an appropriate thing to ask for, isn't it? <laughs> sure is. <laughs> oh, well, I've so enjoyed learning from you as always and hearing your story and hearing what God's uh, doing through you and what you're trying to discover in real time, whether it was before COVID or during COVID and whatever time that we're in now that you want to call it. It's just exploring the opportunity, as you mentioned, of there's a clean slate. So what does this look like? And lead us well. So I'll be cheering you on from North Carolina here. Hey, thanks, Justin. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. I've noticed, uh, Justin, you, you have a way of stretching me in lots of ways. I know in our visit to North Carolina, I, I got to do a workout that I'd never thought I, I, I never imagined myself doing before. <laughs> but you have a way of stretching me to, to grow. And I appreciate that about you. Thank you for being flexible and nimble for uh, trying these things out. So whether it's yeah. a workout or whether it's leading a fellowship group or just doing whatever next adventure I ask you to do, including being a guest on the podcast. Thank you for always trying something and being willing to get outside your comfort zone. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before you take off, I wanted to ask if you would enjoy getting a short email from me every Wednesday called A Kind Word. It provides a little positivity to help you get over hump day. It's free and shares highlights of things that have brought me joy over the past week. If you want to start getting a kind word from me, simply sign up at justinthomascoaching.com by entering your email address and you'll get the next one. That's justinthomascoaching.com. Thanks again for listening. Bless and protect. Mm -hmm.